0: i start by saying a few words about Cumberland Lodge. I know there are some people here who know Cumberland Lodge extremely well and there are others who probably never heard of it before. So for the benefit of, uh, of the latter, Cumberland Lodge um, is an educational charity. We're based in former royal residence in the middle of Windsor Great Park. And what we specialize in doing is bringing people together from different sectors, different perspectives to address Uh, societal issues and that's how we came to be working on this project on working identities. We operate in various ways but one way that we operate which is central to to our work is to work around a residential conference and before we hold that conference we commission a research associate to write briefing document for it and Eva has been working with us uh, on this project it ensures that everyone who takes part is on some sort of level playing field when we come to the discussions and then we try to bring together academics practitioners um, research students people in public life all sorts of different perspectives to address the issue through the conference and the conference is not the sort of conference where people just turn up and and uh, do their own thing we actually ask People to focus on particular questions with the aim at the end of the conference of being able to distill some key findings that can be put into uh, a report with recommendations and ideas that others might want to pick up on. So Eva very kindly did that and then uh, after writing that draft report we then convene a consultation where we bring about some of the people who were part of the original uh, piece of work for the conference but also those who we think it would be good to hear from to get an even broader perspective and perhaps there are one or two people who we really wanted at the conference who couldn't come so we tried to get those back as well and we use that as an opportunity to reflect on some of the key issues that um, the research associate has, has, has asked us to to drill down a bit deeper on when that's all completed we produce uh, a report so this report distills the original briefing document and then brings together the recommendations, the ideas uh, at the end. And that's how we come to be here this evening because we then uh, launch the report and we try to do it in central London uh, where we can invite uh, a wide range of people again to come uh, to this event. So that's what it's all about. In a moment Eva's guest is going to introduce the, the report and tell us a bit about the background to it. Then I'm going to invite our three panellists this evening to, to comment on the report. So we'll hear first of all from Jackie O'Reilly, Professor of Comparative Human Resources at the University of Sussex. So Jackie is sitting on the end and will respond first. Then we'll hear from uh, Kate Bell, who uh, leads the TUC's work on employment rights. She's also a member of the Low Pay Commission. It's really good to have you here as well. And then finally, we'll hear from Mark Littlewood, Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. So they'll all speak for uh, five to ten minutes, and then after they've all spoken, we'll open it immediately uh, for Q&A. And uh, and at the end of that, there's a drinks reception. So please don't rush away. There'll be an opportunity to to meet and mix in a room next door. So that's the format of the evening. Eva, over to you.
1: Thank you very much for this introduction Ed. Um, my name is Eva Selenko. I'm extremely honoured and pleased to be here and I thank you all for coming and taking this time out of the evening. Um, it, for me this was an enormously interesting and um, also <coughs> yeah, developmental process I would say. My background is in work psychology. So I am coming from an individual level perspective to the topic of identity, so I'm naturally interested in what's, how does identity develop on an individual plane, how does it influence individual behavior, attitudes, well-being, and that to take those individual level perspectives onto a broader societal context was enormously exciting. and. This report is the end product of it, as Ed said. It's to be read in perhaps two parts. So the first part is my academic introduction to the five topic areas of the conference, which were the working classes, digitalization, youth unemployment, bullshit jobs, and um, precarity, and how these issues affect identity and what comes from it. And then during the conference, we saw a number of speakers and we had a number of discussions that then informed policy decisions so the second part is perhaps less informed by literature but more informed by our discussions um, i would be very curious about your feedback and opinion on the things that we have created so on this it has been a collective process um, i've been forming this process together but i couldn't do it without the help of cumberland Lodge. fantastic people there and so it was a a really really fantastic process to be part of so I'm happy about this project but let's hear it from you later on what you think about it Um, and from our other panelists today thank you very much
0: thank you well Jackie you've been part of the the whole project and so we thought it would be appropriate to hear from you you first and to get your responses uh, particularly, I think we've asked you to focus on young people in employment digital revolutions. So yeah. like thank you. you?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me and to all the other events as well. It was absolutely fantastic opportunity to meet a very disparate range of different people. And I think, you know, congratulations to Ava for bringing this all together. It's a pretty difficult job to try and capture these very wide-ranging opinions and people who didn't agree with each other and trying to streamline them somehow into some sense of coherence. Not everybody will agree with everything in there, but I think she's done a fair reflection of trying to cover some of that disparity. And also thanks to Jan Bock, who's the research director, of which this is just one of a series of papers on uh, identities. And so when I was thinking about identities recently... I'm, I'm an economic sociologist, so I come from a different discipline to AFA, so I tend to look at kind of social structures, and I work in a business school, so that flavours a bit of my economic sociology in some ways... <clears throat> And one of the things that I thought about were if you think about the 2012 Olympics, how we had a massive celebration of cultural diversity and openness of the UK, and we had a sense of humour. We had the Queen, you know, pretending to jump out of an aeroplane. It was absolutely amazing. Four years later, we have a country where it's ravaged by hatred, fear, and different contested identities between different groups, even to the extent of fights outside cinemas. Shockingly enough, the other day. So how did that happen? How did this identity, openness, and diversity, it celebrated in 2012, change so quickly in such a few years since the uh, the referendum in 2016? So we had. 2015, the migrant crisis, the Euro crisis. So some of these really big shocks that happened outside of the UK that really impinge on the way that we're feeling ourselves. And I think this is something that needs to be taken into context to so try and say, what are identities and how vulnerable are they or fragile and who supports them? And in some ways, the, 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 uh, the reports tends to get at some of that, but I think it's a really important question. Secondly, uh, working identities. Why are we focusing on work? I mean, it's not all about work, as my kids keep telling me. <laughs> Mum, you know, time to turn the computer off and uh, go out sometimes. Um, work isn't everything. But I think also what Ava pulls out of the report is that draws on her own work, on the work from Maria Hoda, who did a very classic study in the 1930s of unemployment in, um, in Vienna, in Marianthal, and showed that work really matters, not just for the money, but it matters in terms of what your social status is, that's why you're all here, you're interested in talking to the converted, but it matters in what your social status is, what your class is, which we'll discuss later, it matters in terms of the types of social connections you have and this word connections is something I think is really central to how we understand what's happening to young people, what's happening to work in the digital age and what does this concept of connection mean. So that's kind of what I want to talk a little bit about. So, in that, we've got a new research centre, by the way, to do cheap publicity uh, at the oh, University of yeah. Sussex yeah. with some eminent people from Eversheds, Mark Marion, and others who'll be involved with us there. So, it's looking at digital futures at work, and that's Sussex and Leeds. And what we want to look at there are things around connected, disconnected, overconnected. Now, I can produce lots of multi nominal logistic regressions with tons of numbers on it that you'd love if you're an economist. For example, at Oxford, they love it, their eyes just go... Or who actually conveys that message much better than me is Ken Loach. So his two films, I, Daniel Blake, is really about how a traditional working class industrial worker is disconnected from the system because the Department of Work and Pensions policy is digital by default. You can't get your benefits unless you go online. And there's a classic scene in the film when a woman says to him at the Job Centre Plus, run the mouse up the screen. And he <laughs> literally does that. My dad had his fingers lost in industrial accident work. He couldn't get the hang of moving a mouse at all. So, there are certain types of men who just can't actually connect with the actual technology itself, much less. Google Internet. My mum, she's 87, she's like Miss Marple of the iPad. She can find out who's embezzled what money, who's dead, and Irish Radio. <laughs> so it's not, it's not, I'm not joking, it's not uh, an age thing, it might be a gender thing. But Daniel Blake is really about how this particular classical working class man is disconnected from a system that's moving towards digital. The new film, Sorry I Missed You, is a really excellent example of the opposite. It's somebody who is completely over-connected his so every movement is monitored by the delivery firm and dispatches he's working for in terms of being a self-employed contractor. Go and watch the films, they're great. They really convey sort of the zeitgeist of today. Now I want to talk about the kind of problems they raise, what's talked about in the report very briefly on two issues of youth unemployment and the digital age. The why can I talk about youth unemployment apart from, I used to say, well first of all the European Union gave us a couple of million pounds to investigate it, which we did very thoroughly in lots of interesting European countries, Uh, so thank you very much Europe, we appreciate it. Um, I used to say things, what's the difference between youth unemployment today, or in the past couple of years, compared to the 1980s when I grew up and was an unemployed young person? And well the answer is obvious, isn't it? our music was much better. <laughs> but <laughs> some people can test that, and my kids also pointed out that their music's not as bad as we think. But the main point, anyway, out of that research, we identify five characteristics of youth unemployment in Europe which are resonant in this report. And there are about flexibility, and to what extent is this a reflection of the growth of precarious employment. And some, from some very systematic research we did, you find that young people are not able to access full-time permanent jobs. When they're coming into the labour market, there has been an increase of part-time, temporary and precarious forms of employment. The proportion of young people, the type of jobs they can get there. There's educational mismatch between the qualifications they have and the skills that are required. Sometimes it's because the firms aren't actually able to use the skills that young people have. The classic example is blame the victim. You know, young people and teachers and universities, they're all rubbish, and they all need to get their skills up. Actually, the problem is with firms. They're not very good at adopting some of these new technologies to use their skills. Thirdly, which is mentioned in the thing, migration and identity, how that changes, uh, who is in the labour market. For example, I was in Berlin last week. The employment boom in Berlin is attributable to the number of migrants that are now working in the economy. So employment growth is actually stimulated by that. A fourth point we argued are family legacies from previous recessions. And this also comes out here in the report too. It talks about what legacies your families have. So families who were made unemployed in the 1980s, what we found in our research was that if you look across Europe, if you grew up in a household where nobody is working, you are 30% more likely than a young person growing up in any other kind of household to be unemployed. It doesn't matter if it's Denmark or the UK, the the probability is that high. But the difference is the proportions are much lower in Denmark, for example, than they would be in the UK. So if you grow up in a household that wore the scars of those previous recessions, those scars carry on for several generations. And what we've also seen is a massive attempt to get policies, and part of this programme here is to try and identify what policies can be done to help young people. Sorry, know I'm taking a bit long, but anyway, I'll hurry up. One, employer engagement. I think organisations like Youth Employment (coughs) UK, led by LJ Rowlings, their attempt to engage with young people through their social enterprise, to involve big companies like BT in mentoring young people and bringing them to the system are really good examples. The report also argues we need co-determination of actors working together. One of the real fundamental problems in the UK is a real fragmentation of providers in labour market services. And you cite in the report over the case of Preston as an example of a, local, a locality that's really brought together some key actors to try and revive that local <coughs> economy. And so the question is, who are the key actors? Is it the TUC? Is it employers' organisations? Is it the workers? In that example from Preston, you see it's anchor institutions who are large employers like local authorities, universities, hospitals. These organizations can act to turn around and change their local economy and that's really important and it's heard it all through the election services for young people have just been slashed and it's a terrible right that's the first bit on youth unemployment Digital identities, what are the real problems there? One of the problems, I think, is do we reduce our identities to some two dimensional data points? So, although we can collect lots and lots of data points about people, we can oversimplify how those people are treated in the systems. And some of the critiques coming out of the United States about automating inequality from Virginia Eubank or uh, weapons of math destruction from Cathy O'Neill. Argue that the way this data is collected, for example, in prisons, and how it influences decision making about sentencing, for example, says they can get prisoners to fill out surveys. And you know what? Surprise, surprise! If you're black, poorly educated, and poor, your recidivism rates are much higher than if you don't have those characteristics. Therefore, the algorithm says, you know what? If we go to prison for longer, it might be more effective. Well it's just reinforcing a whole set of biases so one of the key issues that comes out about these identities how are these digital technologies forming particular types of identities of people who can be seen and people who aren't seen and i think some really to come back to the point about working class identities as well which is discussed here as maybe this is not the one to go for there are some identities that are becoming invisible like i daniel blake And there are some, let's be positive, identities that are becoming more visible through these technologies, like Black Lives Matter, Me Too. These are organisations that could only be feasible through the forms of the internet. And now I will uh, just end with one last note. Uh, Sorry. If we compare this so-called revolution, uh, Fourth Industrial Revolution, with previous ones, what were previous ones like? Well however many there were, ugly, brutal, and uh, fast. And also, at the same time, extraordinarily creative. If we think of the Victorian age, you had side by side both of these things happening. So is this what we're going to see happening in the future? And the last point to end on, in terms of the mode of identities, is that in that industrial revolution, you had new identities being created in the creation of the proletariat, the working class and organisations that represented them, that were new. So in this revolution, will we see new identities emerging and becoming more visible? And I think the report really tries to get at some of those problems. Thank you very much. Sorry, it's a bit long.
0: Thank you, it's great. And I think we'll be picking up on some of those issues a bit later um, on this table. So, Kate, you've not been part of the process this Thus far, but here you are, and thank you very much indeed for being with us. We've, this sounds rather gloomy actually, we've asked you to focus on worklessness, unemployment, and meaningless work, (laughs) i.e., bullshit jobs. So uh, there we are. Over to you.
3: Brilliant. Well, um, thank you very much for having me um, and for the nice introduction. Um, and I'm sorry on many levels that I'm not Frances O'Grady, our sure, General Secretary. Um, she wanted to be able to join you, but um, the election campaign has thrown our diaries into a bit of disarray. Um, but I was really, really pleased to get the opportunity to read this report in depth um, and to have a bit of a think about it. Um, obviously, I spend quite a lot of time thinking about work. Um, our mission statement says that the TUC exists to make the working world A better place for everyone, but I found it really interesting and valuable to have the kind of psychologically informed approach that is in this report, Um, and it made me think quite a lot. Um, And I wanted to kind of pick up on two of the themes in the report that it did make me think about, and I'm straying a little bit beyond my brief, so apologies. Um, But first, just kind of picking up on that theme of bullshit jobs, and I think there's a really great discussion of this in the report. It's David Graeber's Fae. Phrase, And I think we see quite a lot in kind of discussion about work at the moment, this kind of worry that the kind of meaninglessness of modern work is going to be exacerbated by increasing automation. And there's this kind of creeping fear that there's going to be the existence of work that humans actually need to perform is actually just going to completely disappear altogether. And I think you know there's some good reasons for that. Um, we're in the longest pay crisis for 200 years. That makes people worry about the value of their work. Um, we estimate that we've got 3.7 million people in some form of insecure work. Again, kind of real worries about the quality of those jobs or their meaning. But I think it is quite hard. We do need to lift the gloom a bit. And I think it's quite hard to live kind of in Britain today and not see a kind of crying need for meaningful work. So, many of you probably walked through London on your way here. I think it's really difficult to walk through London at the moment and not think there is a housing crisis that we urgently need to fix, as well as kind of fixing the social safety net. We know we've got a social care crisis, we know we've got an ageing population and we know that's a really labour intensive, important, meaningful job that we need many more people to be trained and remunerated to do. And of course we know that the climate crisis requires a huge investment of resources but also of people to kind of fundamentally change how we produce and consume so that we can meet our ambitions for a net zero carbon economy. And I think these are all crises, but they are also opportunities. And we should be seeing them as opportunities to create more meaningful, decently paid jobs on better terms and conditions. And I think it's really important that we don't allow ourselves to kind of descend into the gloom of all work is meaningless, we're all going to be replaced. Because I think it distracts from that kind of urgent task of thinking, what are the policy solutions, what are the techniques, how do we have an economy that solves those crises and delivers decent jobs while doing so? So, second theme I wanted to kind of pick up on, and I can't come here and not talk about the theme of class being from the TBC. So, the report says we need to probably um, think less about class and kind of downplay the importance of class when we talk about work today. And you know, we'd pretty strongly disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know we really understand the concerns that kind of working class can often mean a shorthand for white male and possibly living in the north. And in all of our communications, we try very hard to show that that's not what the <coughs> working class means today. We know the most common working class occupations are care work actually and working in retail. Um, But I think it is really important that we do talk about how power and economic resources are distributed unevenly in society. And I think probably class does remain our best shorthand for that. So some research we published earlier this year, which actually used a varying set of definitions around class, which we could talk about more in the questions, if you like. But we found that working class families had been particularly hard hit by the crisis that started after the financial crash, whereas at least in the last two years we've seen the highest earners seeing the largest pay rises. Um we've seen that that decade of austerity that we've experienced has had a disproportionate impact on working class families. They've seen a larger proportion of their incomes or kind of the value of public services to them taken away. And we also found that discrimination based on class background is still actually pretty prevalent in the workplace today. So we did a bit of kind of very simple analysis and we found that um, graduates with parents in professional and routine jobs, were more than twice as likely as working class graduates or graduates with parents in what would be classified as working class jobs to start jobs which had a higher salary. And that was irrespective of their degree, um, where they'd been to university, kind of their experience beforehand. And I think that shows that class is still kind of pretty prevalent in the workplace today. And we think that we need to be talking about class identities. We need to be talking about class analysis in order to be able to solve those problems. Um, we've spent a lot of time thinking about this and one thing that's kind of really helped me think about it is that when the TUC was founded um, our mission statement back in the kind of 1880s in the kind of heat of the Industrial Revolution was to represent the interests of the working classes and that was plural so it didn't say there's one working class identity we only represent that but it did say that working people coming together can kind of best achieve these aims and we think it's really important to keep reiterating that and to keep talking about class as a way of kind of reinforcing that type of analysis. Um, so I think in kind of doing both of those things, we do need to think about the policy recommendations and there was lots and lots in this report that we really agreed with. So I'm going to run through kind of very quickly, you know, where I think some of our ideas kind of resonated with what the report found and then maybe we can have more in the discussion about do any of those ideas make sense. So the report talks about kind of um, legislation and inclusive communities and digital workplaces. And we're going to spend next year thinking quite a lot about platforms, but one idea I kind of wanted to bring in here was something that the International Labour Organization has been talking about in their um, report on the future of work, and they talk about a universal labour guarantee, which basically says that anyone wherever they're working should have the right to a minimum wage, to health and safety protection um, and maximum limits on working hours and I think that's quite a good challenge for us to think about well how might we achieve that for workers on platforms another really quick thing we've been thinking about is in terms of the kind of collective rights for platform workers Um, that's the ILO calling now to say you know (laughs) I've got the answer to this Um, We've been thinking about um, digital rights of access to trade unions. So could you say if you get all your work from a platform, does the platform have to display information about how you can join a trade union, (coughs) how to realise your collective rights? Um, Again, I was going to talk a little bit about unemployment. I think the report's great Mm -hmm. on the psychological impacts of unemployment. I think it's really important we remember that and although the uk's kind of currently high levels of employment are often kind of held up as something to celebrate and they should be it's really important that we've got many more people in work it's really important also to remember there are still 1.3 million people actively seeking work in the uk economy Um, And I think it is quite important that we don't just look at the individual level solutions here but we also look at kind of macroeconomic policy. Um, We think government should have a more explicit aim to be pursuing full employment. Um, And it's only with the kind of right economic policies that we're actually going to be able to see, you know, what we want, which is decent jobs for everybody. Um, The report also talks about supporting workers experiencing changes due to digitalisation and automation. And I think we'd probably go a bit further than that and say that workers need to be kind of at the forefront of how digitalisation and automation are actually introduced into companies. There's really, really widespread evidence that technology works better if you ask people before it's introduced into the workplace. So if you say, how could you use this new, I don't know, cutting technology in a metals plant, how is actually Skype for Business to take a personal and work-based mode <laughs> actually going to deliver in your organisation if you consult people first? it works better but too often that's not really taken into account so we've called for example for workplace technology agreements and at a kind of higher level to say well why can't we have an approach which they've used in Germany which brings together um, employers workers and business in some kind of national level future of work commission which says what do we want technology to do how do we want to use it how do we want this to actually change them nature of work, rather than a kind of passive approach, which always assumes that technology is something that's done to us, rather than something that we actually get to shape ourselves. two more and then I will actually stop. So again, really pleased to see the um, emphasis on tackling discrimination, um, both through legislation and community structures. Um, I won't go into our detailed policy recommendations there, but we have many of them, if anyone would like to know what they are. Um, And then again, I think just wanted to kind of endorse the. Emphasis on using public procurement. And you cite the Preston model, that's great. It's shown where kind of money going into the local economy can make a real difference. But there's some really nice other examples from around the UK which I think are kind of giving us a bit of optimism that this is an approach that can actually work. So in Scotland, there was a Procurement Reform Act which. Um, requires all public bodies to have a procurement strategy that supports community benefits and a living wage so it's not just money staying in the local economy but delivering better jobs for people too Um, and actually um, Rochdale, Stockport, Thameside and Crawford councils have an approach where they've joined together their procurement and they're showing again that they can get more economy flowing, more money flowing through the local economy and going to local people in the form of higher wages. So I think it's really important. It's not always seen, that kind of procurement conversation is often seen as a bit boring, basically, but I think it's absolutely vital that we think about it within our tools to um, improve the quality of work. Um, So quite amusingly to me, my conclusion said almost exactly the same as Jackie's. I said, you know, trade unions were founded in the heat of the Industrial Revolution. Um, We were needed then, we're needed today. Um, And I think it is really important that we think about how kind of Many of the problems we were facing then are actually very similar. So widespread poverty, um, rapid industrial change, and although we probably weren't thinking a bit like then, you know, climate impacts, um, we think workers' voice, giving workers a voice, and actually making them realize their kind of working class power by joining together was really important in solving those problems. And we think that will be the case in the future too.
0: Thank you very much indeed. So we gave you a pretty gloomy title, but actually you've come out with quite a lot of optimism, <laughs> yeah. um, which brings on to, to Mark. So um, I think your views are that there's, there's plenty to hope for in the future.
4: Yeah, I've, I've, got to, I've got to rip up my notes now. I assume these two were just <laughs> going to be doom and gloom, and I was going to be the one optimist. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going, to, I'm going to dial up the optimism, uh, far, far beyond um, what we've heard from from... Kate, uh, I should start by saying fascinating report, uh, read it in full today. Uh, this is a major issue for uh, our times, the changing nature of work. Um, and I'm delighted in the way that you framed it here because I think actually uh, a lot of the focus, understandably, has just been on the technical side of how employment's changing, not on the social change that it brings about. Um, so um, on my overview, I've got it. Uh, I've already split it into two different elements. I mean, should we be optimistic or concerned in broad terms about the way the world of work is changing, in terms of the employment and economic consequences of uh, new technologies and new methods of working? Um, and what about civil society as a whole? I mean, this identity question. If we used to discover social solidarity through a predictable working pattern in a predictable uh, community? Are we about to become a whole bunch of wholly atomised, alienated individuals in our own bubble, doing our own thing and feeling completely in society? So those are the areas that I want to focus on, and I want to give you some reasons to be cheerful. Um, so one section of the report says this, during the late 20th century there was a move towards more precarious, less secure and more flexible work leading to the growth of the working poor and an increase in the number of people in need of multiple jobs. I'm not totally sure I agree with all of that, but let's try and unpack it. Firstly, we are seeing a much more flexible workforce. There's no doubt about that. And to some considerable degree, there is a trade-off between security and flexibility. Um, so you, you might want to Huge amounts of both, but I think those are difficult to get. So we're moving away I'm caricaturing it here from, you know, you start working for an employer age 16 or 18 and you do 40 years with the same employer, probably slowly booming through the ranks. You retire in your 60s, they give you a carriage clock and a send-off. Uh, probably back in the day then, your life expectancy of healthy retirement considerably lower than it is now. Uh, But security is there, your life is predictable, not so much uh, today. Um, But I think the overall numbers on wealth, income, are not too bad. (coughs) They're not heroic by any means, but progress is being made. I mean, here are some markers. GDP per capita, according to the World Bank, in real terms. I'm taking account of inflation here. Go back to the turn of the millennium. 21,700 in 2000 touching 30,000 by 2009, Uh, and last year, 33,000. That's an increase of 10% over 10 years. Pretty pretty poor, actually, in historical terms. Uh, But still an increase in 10 years. Or mean household income 10 years ago, uh, 32,600 now, 35,300. I mean, these are incremental, not game-changing, but things are uh, uh, potentially... Improving in terms of our affluence and income in aggregate might be true of everybody, of course. What about people needing needing multiple jobs? Uh, again, is this a problem? Uh, certainly, on working hours tended to fall. Now, you can argue this both ways. Some people are sort of saying, "Oh my God, this is a sign of lots of part-time workers who want full-time jobs." Uh, But perhaps it's a sign of people not having to work their fingers to the bone as much as they used to. So, um, again, the turn of the millennium, average UK worker worked, according to the official National Office of National Statistics, 37.9 hours a week. Uh, Last year it was 37.1 hours a week. I mean, hardly a, a, a huge shift, but people working a bit less. And that's part of, not a wholly consistent, but a general historical trend. If you look from the late 19th century to the late 20th century, between 1870 and 1987, look at working hours in France, Germany, the UK and the US. Back in the 1870s, uh, you would have been working about 3,000 hours a year. Now you'll be working about 1,600 hours a year and be considerably richer than most people were at the end of the 19th century. Employment rates are robust. uh, Record amount of full-time jobs in the British economy. Um, the percentage of people working in part-time employment as less than 30 hours a week in their primary jobs, about 23%, about where it was in 2000 and 2009. So we're working, same hours or a bit less, same level of part-time employment, incomes going up, uh, albeit modestly. Um, and uh, increased workplace flexibility can be a good thing. Um, uh, Jackie, you mentioned Ken Loach's films. I, 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 I get the great privilege to see Ken Loach's films about two weeks uh, before they come out at the cinema because my job is to usually write up for a newspaper why I disagree with him, even though, even though I think he's a, he's a good uh, filmmaker. And his latest film, which I do commend as a, as a filmmaker, I, I strongly agree with him, but I think on this sort of flexibility, precariousness question, there's a real horses for courses uh, argument so in this in this film in this particular film set in uh, Newcastle isn't it set in the northeast. It's uh, a fairly traditional family, uh, uh, two earners, two kids, uh, and uh, the father and mother are the key breadwinners, and they've got dependents, and you can understand in that sort of situation actually security being really quite important. You've got to sort of feed your kids, and the rent and all of the utility bills are on you, but obviously you can imagine different individuals or different family arrangements where that's much less the case. I mean, perhaps you're a youngster, still living at home with mum and dad, um, and you want to earn some money. uh, And if you fail to do so, it doesn't mean you're out of house and home. um, Or perhaps that you're retired. uh, You've got um, modest pension, which can, again, certainly keep the wolf from the door. And you've cleared your mortgage, and you want to earn a little bit more. In those circumstances, precariousness doesn't matter as much as the traditional nuclear family breadwinner approach. What about the precariousness, then? And again, this is not definitive, but I've had a look at a couple of studies. Do these people feel anxious and nervous? And perhaps some of them do. But in a report um, released by the University of Oxford last year, Uber happy work and well-being in the gig economy, they were looking particularly at Uber drivers who remain, they say, I quote, at the lower end of the London income distribution, but they report higher levels of life satisfaction than average workers. Uh, another report from the Paris School of Economics and INSEAD released earlier this year, uh, titled The Effects of Self and Temporary Employment on Mental Health, the Role of the Gig Economy in the UK. A couple of quotes from that. Self-employed gig economy workers in the UK score higher across a range of psychological well-being measures than workers in the mainstream economy. Gig economy workers unexpectedly are about 33% more likely to self-report positive mental health traits goes on, self-employed workers in the UK have better mental health than their normal salaried peers, with gig workers found to drink less, which, is sure that's a good thing actually, but uh, have higher confidence levels and generally exhibit less signs of stress. Uh, I was interested in the report where it talks about uh, sort of risk and how that's built social, sort a of solidarity amongst the workforce, and um, I think that's true, but again, there are downsides of it as Well, uh, again, if you look right back to the 19th century, US President uh, Benjamin Harrison said, American workmen are subjected to peril of life and limb as great as a soldier in times of war. And I suppose you can imagine the solidarity around. I mean, I've, I've only done a. You know, middle class desk job all of my life. Uh, if my colleagues let me down, I don't die. Um, I'm, you know, I am uh, definitely reliant on Alex here in the front row to provide me with accurate notes and statistics. But the worst that will happen if he screws up is I'll make a fool of myself, not that I will die in my workplace. So high risk, I think, led to close social solidarity. But I'm not sure many people want that high risk of uh, uh, hugely high risk of losing a limb or being killed in a factory. And so again, I think there are trade-offs here. Uh, you will get solidarity amongst people who really are reliant on each other uh, for their lives. And again, huge um, uh, strides forwards here, Stephen Pinker, a free market optimist like me. Uh, noted in 1913 most of the population was then working in factories or at least manual labour every year 61 out of 100,000 employees died in work related accidents, 61 in 2015 that number had fallen to 3.2 20 fold decrease, things have got less risky so perhaps the solidarity doesn't need uh, to be there a um, couple of the recommendations to move away from class based identities in <coughs> public discourse, I was interested by that, never really thought about it, and I think I'm sympathetic. Um, I take Kate's point. I don't think class is an irrelevance. But I think it's less of a binary characteristic than it used to be 20, 30, or 40 years ago. And we see that in a large number of ways. In fact, I was just reading yesterday that in general elections, a generation or two ago, class would have been a very, very strong predictor of how you would vote, and that to some degree has been replaced by age, actually, as a predictor of how you're likely uh, to vote. So I'm not saying that class is irrelevant, but I wonder whether many, many moons ago when I was at university, I was told that class is the only distinction that matters in British politics. Um, It explains everything, partly because uh, we haven't had in, in, in recent times in many ways in religious or sectarian divisions in the way that, uh, or, or until quite recently, regional divisions. Uh, but I'm sceptical that class matters so much anymore. I think we're going to move towards people having um, multifaceted elements of identity, of which perhaps self-identifying as working class or middle class, or actually objectively being working class or middle class, however you self-identify as one. But I think it's only going to be one point on the spectrum, uh, so I think that your race, your gender, your sexuality your role in civil society will all matter as well the other policy recommendation that I was to think I was to rethink public procurement and ensure that profits stay in the local community um Profit staying in the local community always sounds good, I guess, but I wouldn't want local communities to become closed places, that everything we do here has to be built here and made here, and we're only going to employ people from this neck of the woods. What I'd like to see is actually a more comprehensive empowerment of local uh, communities. Uh, We are pretty much the most centralised economy and democratic system in the Western world. Uh, our general election matters so much on December the 12th because 95% of all tax and spending decisions are made in the buildings just over there. This is absolutely crazy compared to any other Western country in which local municipalities or states or regions will have an awful lot of tax and spending decisions and also a lot of legislative flexibility. So, we are far too close to local areas just basically having to conduct the will of Westminster or Whitehall. Uh, and so, procurement, I agree, is important. But I would actually like to see lots more different and variations in local design. I'd quite like to see local experimentations in welfare. I don't think we need the same welfare state and provision absolutely everywhere in the United Kingdom. Perhaps different local communities can find different ways that suit them, out with whatever you think the budget should be. I'd like to see local communities have much more control over tax spend and, crucially, design. Uh, So those are my thoughts there. In terms of one final point on uh, working and its identity to us, I suspect and I hope in general terms, a bit like being working class or middle class, our job will be a less overwhelming, defining trait of our identities in future. In part, because over the proportion of our life, work will be a lower percentage of it, and retirements in general terms are longer and healthier than they have been previously, so we're not going to be in the workforce for as high a period of time. But I think actually what we do in civil society, particularly if we have uh, uh, more affluence and more leisure time even though that's only been nudging up not zooming up, might very well come to be how we define myself my father's ambition was to retire at 50 he was a moderately successful chap in the private sector, not colossally successful, he actually ended up retiring at about 55, so he hasn't worked for more than 20 years now, he certainly wouldn't define his identity by his job uh, nor his previous job he defines it by what he does in the local community what his hobbies and pastimes are and i think that we might actually find that in terms of our identity work matters less in the future and i think that would be a good
0: thing Thank you very much well, there we are thank you very much indeed um some provocative uh, things to throw out uh, let's just go straight out to any question we've got Uh, A roving mic. Please use the roving mic so that we can capture capture this. But also, perhaps you just say who you are as well when you uh, ask your question. Does it doesn't have
5: to be a question or can I make a comment? Make a short comment is fine. Okay, sure. So my name is Jonathan Pinto. I'm an associate professor at Imperial College Business School. And in my previous life, I was a consultant with Accenture. And I was really struck by this whole bullshit jobs thing. And I was, um, I've was i lived in India, I've lived in America, where I got my PhD and I've been living here for over 11 years in London. And I think the question to be asked is, so where do these bullshit jobs come from? And I think they come from a bullshit work, and bullshit work is non-value adding work, which is the excessive bureaucracy, it's very obvious to anybody who hasn't lived in this country, the amount of admin jobs that there are in, in this place. There's so much of admin, everyone supervising everyone else, and um, work processes that go through more handoffs than they need to so I think if the recommendations in the report are silent on how do you get uh, tackle the bullshit jobs so I would say if there's a mass movement of streamlining the work processes in government in public sector particularly private sector because you will pay a price for it in terms of your competitiveness but in these other places where it's not so obvious and then that would lead to two benefits. One, would the bullshit jobs would go away and people would have more meaningful more highly paid jobs and secondly, the efficiencies and the responsiveness of the organisations would increase as well. Thanks. Anyone want to respond to, to that or leave it as a comment?
4: I think it's really interesting and I, I agree with that. I mean, I'm, one of my worries, and you've got to get a balance right here, is that one of the fastest growing um, areas of employment over the last 20 years has been compliance. No, don't get me, don't no, get me it's wrong. it's not <laughs> But don't, no, don't,
2: don't get
4: me wrong. It, the financial is, is <laughs> like well, But we actually had more compliance officers in 2008 than we would have dreamt of having in 1988. Many, many more. And compliance has grown and grown and grown. Do we think that is working? Uh, do we think that the scale of the growth in compliance, if you want to work in financial services now, your better route is to go into compliance than to actually work in financial services. In fact, the number of uh, compliance officers uh, in comparison to the number of people working in financial services has been going up quite steadily since the 1970s um, much much more uh, in 2008 than we would have dreamt of in the 70s, 80s or 90s the present trajectory now mm-hmm. economists shouldn't say trajectories are actually where we need to end up but were we to stay on this trajectory which I think is unlikely but just to illustrate it by the year 2070 there will be more compliance officers than people working in financial services. In fact, everybody working in financial services will be able to have their own personal compliance officer on their shoulder throughout their entire working life. Uh, I think that uh, that being safe and making sure that you're not on the wrong side of the law is an important part of it. But I think there's a bullshit job element to the scale of compliance that we actually
5: have. I think Do that's you? very ideological. <laughs> it is ideological. <laughs> I, just to make, I just wanted to make a quick comment that what you just described is called a teeth to tail ratio. So I'd like everybody in this room to take that away, the teeth-to-tail ratio from the military, where the teeth are the productive units and the tail are the supportive units.
3: I think it's a, a really interesting example, though, about what Mark just talked about around health and safety. So our health and safety record has improved exponentially during the last century, right? And let's think about how we actually managed to do that. That could not be more meaningful, basically, but does require it requires strong legislation and actually it requires giving really strong powers to trade union officials to monitor health and safety in the workplace. Trade union movement has always been at the forefront of health and safety legislation and still has you know, statutory roles, which enables it to do it today. So they asked people, what do you need in your workplace? What do you know about how to ensure processes are safe here? And that's been a really important program process of getting it right. And then they said, we need a minimum floor of some standards that everyone has to fit, kind of has to accord to. And then we need a monitoring body, which actually the Health and Safety Commission does have representation of workers, business, government on it to say, how do we take a kind of approach to this which looks at it sensibly? And I think if we could think of more processes, you know, how do we want to introduce new technology into workplaces? Do we want it to be on kind of, you know, top down, you're now going to run three different software programs and by the way, we're now going to employ four different people to help you run those, maybe not the best idea. But if we were able to do it in that kind of tripartite way where you say, let's give everyone a voice here, let's let everyone's interests be represented and underpin that with some strong legislation, you might see an absence of the kind of pointless, repetitive work and actually the kind of achievements we've seen in health and safety. Maybe we could see those achievements in productivity too.
0: Jackie, I think we want to say something you were... No. You don't? No, that's, uh, we've said a lot. Let, you said yeah, but believer wants to say
1: I, something. I just, I just want to add. I think it's a very dangerous discussion to get into if we start pointing fingers at what is a bullshit job yeah. and what isn't. Um, because somebody's bullshit job might be a very meaningful job to someone else. I'm not saying it's completely subjective. No, there are certain conditions that create experiences of meaningfulness. And I think we need to work on those conditions to make those jobs meaningful. Um, but I think the discussion that Mark was opening was about the societal value or business value, whatever you mean by value, of certain jobs. That's a moral or that's a discussion I, couldn't, I wouldn't want to comment on. <coughs>
4: but, uh, everybody assumed I was talking about health and safety and, and sort of showing a cavalier attitude to other no, people. Let me give an example where uh, I would call this out, and maybe it is dangerous, but I'm happy to be dangerous doing so. Tax compliance. Now, this is a completely different issue to what you think the tax rate should be. But the tax code, the tax rule book, has doubled in length in the last 10 years. Uh, no single human being on the planet can now understand it. Uh, this is completely out of the lecture when you, know, you know, maybe you're paying too much or not a little. It's 14,000 pages or more in length. It's 12 times the length of the King James Bible. I have to employ people just to make sure we've understood some unbelievably complex part of whether we can reclaim VAT on this, that, or the other. Now, this is just a compliance thing to keep all of the plates spinning. This is, none of this is about my workers tripping over wires and being killed or having their hand caught in a machine. It's because just the system itself has become so complex that you need brilliant, highly paid people just to navigate your way through something that should never have got this complex. That's what I would call a bullshit job even though it's of fundamental importance to keep me on the right
0: side of the law Mm. one person's bullshit another person's (laughs) fertilized it's
6: a good good analogy because um, as you've heard me say before um, there's good bureaucracy and bad bureaucracy like there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol and um you know the regulation if it's done well improves the outcome for the service recipient If it's done simply for its own sake, it's wasteful for everybody's time and money. Um, But my question was going to be about um, the point that I think three of you were making in slightly different ways, which is um, how people introduce themselves. So our colleague over there told us his name, and he told us what he's done and what he does. And that's who he is, Mm -hmm. because that's how he introduced himself to us. So that's who we now think he is. And I'm interested in how your father would introduce himself. Um, because I'm retired, but I don't ever tell people I'm retired. I tell them what I do. And what I do is who I am and always has been. And um, I'm really interested in how, in a future world, people will describe who they are when they are, if they don't have a role to describe themselves as. And, and just to give you a very quick story, um, this afternoon I was um, on Twitter as I habitually am too often. And there was an argument going on between lawyers about the fact that one rather self-important uh, lawyer had described the fact that some work that lawyers do is less prestigious than others. So never mind bullshit jobs. This is about the people who are already earning big bucks arguing amongst themselves about whether their work is more or less prestigious than the other. And it was—it really, really mattered to them. It really, really mattered to people that one rather self-important important boy was implying that they were less prestigious because of the work they did within an extremely prestigious profession. So i I think... This is so fundamental to how people describe themselves. got um, <coughs> comments? How would you want to describe yourself, Jane? Yeah. Um, I would describe myself as um, if you asked me, um, Jane, who are you? I would say I'm a lay commissioner at the Judicial Appointments Commission. I'm a trustee of Cumberland Lodge. And then I might go on to tell you that, you know, I'm married, um, and uh, there will be other bits of me I will talk about, but they would be the first two things I would tell you if you met to yeah. at a dinner party or yeah. outside, outside of the
0: reception. Yeah. Okay, we collect questions we'll collect questions. I'm conscious of time. We'll to, to collect three questions, so there's one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm
7: Richard Skellett um, from a Social Enterprise Digital Anthropology. So I've got a direct question uh, regarding employment. So would you say that a zero hour contract is a job? Hmm. Yes, okay. it isn't
2: officially a job, isn't it? It's, it it's we'll come
7: back to that. We'll come back to that. The oh, I see. Upon the right. oh I see. Oh I see, right, okay. Yeah. because basically there's thirty two million in one, twenty percent on zero hour contracts and as you rightly said I think there's about one point three or one point four million looking for work. I would kinda argue the point that there's actually seven million people looking for security of employment. Mm-hmm. And then linked into this, just as a, you know, just to give you a little bit further reason, also a, I also own a number of different businesses. So my so I'm i I'm, I'm an entrepreneur who built a whole number of earning for share businesses globally. But my current campaign is all about the role of social enterprise. So as an example, there's $284 which is spent on goods and services by the UK government. So it's quite interesting listening about how might that be redistributed. And just to go off and take a couple of percentage numbers, um, so I'm not in favour of nationalisation, I'm not necessarily in favour of privatisation. I think life today for someone is about being able to make money and go off and do good. So therefore we come into what does a balanced portfolio look like? So a balanced portfolio, in my opinion, is looking at social enterprise, and I'm talking about true social enterprise, where there's no shareholder benefit. Firstly, because social enterprises are very misunderstood. So just taking those numbers of 284 billion, you know, taking 40% margin or 20% margin, you're looking at somewhere 55 billion to maybe 100, 113 billion, which could go off and be redistributed to help the people who are going to be affected, not by the fourth industrial revolution, because I don't believe we're in the fourth fourth industrial revolution, we're in the second digital
0: revolution. Can you wind up your your point, please? So the point is that I think we've got
7: a major problem to do with um, um, employability and helping people to be educated about understanding the cost arbitrage model that's in place to do with global labor, the robotic and AI element, which also goes off and runs, and then thinking about you know companies don't want people, right? Companies don't exist to employ people. Companies exist to go off and deliver shareholder value.
0: Okay. So we that. And then the final.
2: No, so it's fine to get loads of questions if you want. I know oh, it's, no, not it's time. time. It's oh, time. Oh, We've got time. to get for any other time. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Right.
5: Uh, no, quick question. Um, in the Gurney Dixon report of 1954, 64% of pupils were from working class in selective ground schools. Were in working class, came from working class families. Is there any indication that selective education is something to be desired in the future?
0: Okay, so we've got questions about identity, portfolio, working, etc., and uh, selective education. Do you, okay, I, do you want, to, do you want to go in whichever order?
2: I, I kick off, don't mind. I don't know. off, Jackie. You want to pick no, up? No, I, I
3: don't want. I want to pause. Do, okay. I got sort <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> okay. of answers of them. Um, I think Jane's question about kind of the link between identity and work is really interesting. But I think I've probably the while we have a situation where your economic prospects in life are so fundamentally shaped by your job, and not just your economic prospects, but your health prospects, the amount of time you will actually get to spend as a retired person, whether it shapes your identity or not, it is really important for us to understand how important the type of job you do, the terms and conditions you do that job under, are to your future prospects. And I think one of the things we often hear from people who are are working in the more precarious economy was, I thought this was fine until something went wrong, Mm. basically. And I think that's the kind of thing, you know, in some ways, the TUC's job should be to make your work identity less central to your actual identity, because terms and conditions would be great for everybody. And in some ways, you wouldn't need to be thinking, well, actually, I'm going to have this much retirement. I can go here on holiday because it would be less affected by the type of work. But at the moment it's really important we continue to focus on work because it shapes our lives so centrally, whether or not that's how we present ourselves. And second question, I think you're really right to focus on um, underemployment as as important as kind of unemployment in thinking about people's economic prospects. Um, I think you made a good point about the power of government spend. Um, Actually, quite interestingly, the last conservative government or, the David Cameron Conservative government said that they were actually going to try and spend more money on procurement to small business. I don't know how successful that was. But um, I think it would be interesting to say, well, actually, we know we can use the power of procurement spending. Why don't we use it to promote good work? That would be my priority. Um, On the world of grammar schools, I think the evidence is pretty unequivocal that they don't boost social mobility. Um, I think there's a range of economic studies that show that and that what you were seeing kind of during that period of the 60s was actually an expansion of good quality middle class jobs partly because of the public sector which meant that the places for people to go and the kind of prospects of upward mobility were dramatically increased I'll just finish by saying that actually I think the types of crises I talked about are an opportunity for us to do that again to say we can create more good quality well paid decent jobs to t- tackle the climate crisis to deal with social care. Care to build more houses, and that would give us the opportunity to see that kind of positive upward mobility, which delivered good jobs during the 60s and 70s. Okay,
0: you. you want to respond
2: very briefly. Then, um, when I was little, my mum told me, "If you ask somebody at a, par- a family party oh what do you do for a job?' that is really rude. <laughs> really? Yeah, you mm. shouldn't do that because uh, my parents come from Irish migrants who did manual jobs." It was rude to ask somebody because uh, they would have to tell you I'm a bin man mm. or um, I've got to work in a shop or something that's had association with not very attractive jobs. So or said, I'm just
6: a housewife was a very common response.
2: Yeah, be. but you, it was rude. And mm. uh, it was also you were crossing a boundary of privacy that people felt. So they wouldn't do that. So I was just interested. and I couldn't help myself because I was just that kind of annoying child. <laughs> um, I also had a party recently where a friend of mine said... Practice not asking anybody what they do and see what the conversation goes like. And it's really, really interesting, especially if you come from a kind of middle class background like the kind of things we must do here you're educated, Oh, you've been to this university, that university, you do this job. Oh, do you know so and so? Blah, blah, blah. Networking. You do it. Practice. Don't ask them what they do and don't tell them what you do and see what happens and see if you've got anything to talk about. It's actually really quite hard. So to answer your question, that question there. Uh, I think your question, there's lots of stuff in there. I think what you've got essentially, one of the questions, who are the actors of change? So in one sense you implied that say, entrepreneurs who have different social enterprises, we have discussions here, is it the government, is it unions? I think what I liked, for example, from the, the Preston study that was cited in the report, the idea of these anchor institutions as organisations employing sometimes quite a lot of people. And the people that occupy these institutions are actors in what they do in their local communities, how they make procurement, who they employ, etc. And with some work, I was talking to some other startup entrepreneurs, and they said, you know, a government, they haven't got a clue, they're too slow, the unions, well, we got rid of those in the 80s, whatever, and they saw entrepreneurs as the actors. So I just think it's a really, there's very many different ideas of who are the key actors. I do think it's actors acting together in communities. And I think that's a real problem we have in the UK, is that fragmentation. Lastly, if uh, selective education is great, why is Finland at the top of the PISA ranking, and we're not?
5: <laughs>
0: uh, we are. That's a, I think it's a rhetorical question,
5: Mark.
4: Um, <laughs> I think it's a really interesting question, how do you describe <coughs> yourself? I haven't really thought about that before. And to my mind, it depends on context. Right? It depends on the situation you're in. So I'm, you know, I'm unsurprised that uh, this evening I've been you know, introduced as, um, by Ed as the Director General of the IA, because this is what I do for a living. Um, but if I'm uh, watching football down the pub, I'll probably be introduced by somebody who's <laughs> a fan of Southampton Football Club. I yeah. you know, don't really care that I'm the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. Uh, I was at a funeral yesterday and I explained to people what my connection was to one member of the family. I didn't explain to them what I work for a think tank in Westminster. So the, the identity that you put forward, I think, um, is contextualised. I, I agree with you that there's a tendency to talk about prestige. I don't necessarily blame people for that. To talk about how, you know, if you are doing something prestigious, then say so. I mean, the, if you. Play for my football club, you probably introduce yourself as a footballer. If you play for Manchester United, you probably say, I play for Manchester United, because that is more prestigious than playing for Southampton. Right? I was really interested in what Jackie said about the it sort of the rudeness to ask, and there's a privacy issue there. Again, I hadn't really thought of that either. I think that's incumbent upon us to treat all work with dignity, not to look down at somebody who says, I'm the refuse collection guy. Right. Tell, to, because I, to my mind, the question is, tell me about you. Um, uh, and uh, what you're doing, but, you know, I might not know much about I don't know much about refuse collection. If somebody was a Ben man, I'd be interested in listening. Richard asked the question, is a zero-hours contract a job? I think not, actually. It's an undertaking to do work in certain cases, but what will happen, which is going to be a challenge for the TUC, is work's going to become peaceful, that increasingly there'll be people, when you're asked, what do you do, who don't have a nine to five, Monday to Friday, answer. It'll be a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of the other, or I'm taking a break at the moment for a few months, but I hope to re-enter the workforce next year. I'm going to do a bit of landscape gardening, but if that doesn't take off, I might be an Uber driver for a bit. The answers will become incredibly mosaic-like, rather than, I'm a bank clerk, and have been for 10 years. Um, And the last point on um, selective education, goes back to a little bit what I was saying about my commitment uh, and support for proper devolution. I'm not a big fan of grammar. I should say it was a question. Would yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure, you bring back selective education was the question. So is something you think would be desirable? Well I mean I would have uh, selective education but not on this old binary secondary modern versus grammar schools basis that at the age of 11 we're going to decide whether you're a smart kid or a dim kit, and you're either going to go to the smart school or the dim school. But I would like to have a much greater variety of schooling options across the country playing some schools that focus maybe a bit more on music or a bit more on science or a bit more on something else or uh, use different techniques rather than again having the Department for Education over there sort of drawing up the entire national curriculum and working out exactly which Shakespeare play each teacher needs to teach precisely to 13-year-olds in the classroom. I would like local communities to have a lot more power over that. There needs to be limits to it. I don't think you can have a school that says, you know, we're only going to treat white supremacism. We're not going to treat mathematics. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the moment, it is a top-down system. But so are grammar schools and secondary modern schools. Very, very top-down nationally organized examination. So we really do want uh, to look for better ways of educating different types of kids. Let's have some degree of experimentation, not a central plan from the Department of Education.
0: Either you wrote the report (laughs) so you can have the final word anything you want to respond to
1: I think um, I will make it very, very quick but I think it's very interesting how our discussion circles around the same issue from a different angle and I think the issue of who you are the question who are you is often answered by, yeah, what you do. And that might be your work, it might be your social class, it might be what you did before. Mm-hmm. It's simply because we spend a lot of time at work and doing stuff, and whether that is paid work or not paid work. So it's something that comes to our mind more easily than, let's say, I am a skier or so. Okay? So it's simply because of the time argument. Context also plays a role, absolutely agree. Yeah. You would c- declare yourself differently in the pub mm-hmm. than you would hear on a panel, and then with and so on and so on and of course we're more than also work I think what we need to look out for however is that we create the contexts of work that allow people to be yeah, well, to, to gain this understanding of themselves so we were talking about mosaic, precarious insecure work and the question is do these work contexts actually lend themselves to say okay I am and I can derive identity from those contexts and that's something I I'm, I'm a bit hesitant about it. That's, I think, where we need legislation and environmental protection also. Um, OK, I cannot comment on on education, but I would say a zero-hour job to an individual person is certainly work and job. Whether they say, OK, I am this work is a different thing because it's too look to end, perhaps, um, allow for that identification.
0: Thank you. We need to come to an end, um, but you can keep the conversation going next door. I if should. you go out, turn right. Uh, and the drinks reception there. Clearly, this report has provoked a lot of discussion, which is great. Um, do take it away. do um, If there are things you want to follow up with it, please, please, please do that. Uh, and please tell others about it. There's an electronic version as well <coughs> on our website, so anyone can access it. But thank you all for coming. And would you also join me in thanking our panellists mm-hmm. this evening?